Well, good morning. If you would open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to be looking at the first two verses there. While you're turning there, let me just say it's really good to be here. And Isaiah, a prophet of God, spoke these words that were written down by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out that her warfare is ended, that her iniquities are pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about three and a half years ago, and I apologize for starting off my, uh, the, the preaching of this great series with, with a bummer of an illustration, but this, this is the way, it's the only one I could come up with. So uh, three and a half years ago, my, uh, my wife Camille was, was diagnosed with, with cancer. And what followed was 10 months of surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation therapy. And then, of course, every six months, she goes in for a, can- a scan to see if the cancer is, is gone. And thankfully, each scan has come back clear. But I will tell you that as we get closer and closer to each scan, the anxiety grows. And for those of you who go through this or have gone through it, you know that the term scanxiety is, is apt, right? So it follows that the words, your scan is clear, are most welcome. Most welcome. In fact, right now, they are our favorite words. Those words are comforting to us. They are liberating. And I'm sure that, that for everyone here, there are different words that, that bring you comfort. And oh, how we love to hear those words. Comfort is one of the most wonderful things in existence. Everyone loves comfort definitionally, right? You're, you're comforted by something. That means that you are, that you are made to feel better, you are, that the anxiety is, is going, that difficulty is, is leaving. And here in America, we have made the pursuit of comfort into an art form. We are really good at it. We have comfort vehicles, we have comfort clothes, and of course, we have comfort food. Comfort food, uh, usually southern, almost always fried, and always high in calories. You can count on it. It might not be good for us, but oh, how we love it. Makes us feel good, at least for a moment, right? Because that's the case, we shouldn't be surprised. The Bible has a lot to say about comfort. The Lord even promises comfort. We heard that from Isaiah just now. But when the Lord promises comfort, it's not the kind of temporary comfort that comes from eating grilled meat, macaroni and cheese, and Marionberry pie, right? Though all of those things are wonderful gifts from God. I will not deny it. They are. The comfort that God promises is extensive. It's not compartmentalized. It's eternal. It's not just for the moment. 
And it arises ultimately from relationship with him, not relationship with fried food. This morning, you're, you're here. Maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. I would invite you to listen for the next few minutes and consider whether or not the kind of comfort that God promises is the kind that you're seeking. And if it's not the kind you're seeking, ask yourself, why not? Why am I not seeking this? For the rest of you, 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 you understand yourselves to be Christians. I want you to consider whether you have exchanged the kind of comfort that God promises for the cheap imitations that the world offers. Now, we're launching into a series here on Isaiah 40, nine weeks. And to, to get us going, I'll lay a bit of a foundation here. We, we need to ask some questions before we jump right into Isaiah 40. First off, who was Isaiah? Who was Isaiah? Well, Isaiah was a prophet. And he lived in Judah during the 8th century B.C., so the, the 700s B.C. His calling as a prophet is famously recorded in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. And I'm going to read to you a, a, a lengthy portion of this because it sets the stage for what's going to follow in Isaiah 40. Starting in verse 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, this was a good king, King Uzziah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So I'll pause here and I'll just offer one comment. This is awesome. It is jaw-dropping awesome that Isaiah is ushered into this scene. But he comes to realize something when he is face-to-face with this holy awesomeness. That's a deep theological technical term right there. Deep awesomeness. He's face-to-face with it. He realizes that he is a sinner a sinner, and he has no business being there, and he's probably not going to make it out alive. And so, he, 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 verse 5, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, it wasn't just that he'd gotten sloppy with his lunch and left some peanut butter on his face. No, the unclean lips is just evidence that he's a liar. Like the, the first the, the, the first manifestation of sin, or always the second. You either lie by sinning, or you sin, and then you lie by covering it up, right? So he, he realized, he's basically saying, I'm a sinner at the most rudimentary level, and, and I have seen the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, that's God's fighting name. You don't want to come up against the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard, so, so he's, I'll just, just note, atonement for sin. God offers that. Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say this to my people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Now, so this is a lengthy rendering of the commissioning of Isaiah for his task. And it's wondrous and it's difficult. The Lord appears to him in jaw-dropping glory. Isaiah recognizes his unworthiness to be in the Lord's presence because he's a sinner. And the Lord takes his sin away in a demonstration of atonement. And Isaiah, he has to be feeling dizzy and, and pretty good at this point because when the Lord asks whom he should sin, then Isaiah's like Arnold Horshack in like Welcome Back Cotter. It's like, ooh, 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 send me, send me. I am ready, Lord. But that's when the difficult part of the commissioning comes because the Lord announces what Isaiah has to do. He's going to speak to the people, and this, this would be a bummer for like any teacher or preacher. You're going to speak and you're going to preach and no one's going to listen. That's what I want you to do. As a matter of fact, the Lord says they won't listen at all. His message, at least much of it, it's not going to be popular. Why not? Why not? Well, here we have to define what prophecy is and what the prophets did. And, and, and the Hebrew word for prophet and the Hebrew word for prophecy, it's not super helpful because to, 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 to be a prophet is to prophesy and to prophesy is to act like a prophet. It's not very helpful at all. So here's my definition. Prophecy is direct discourse from God to humans mediated through the prophet. Direct discourse from God to people that's mediated through the prophet. So exactly like the biblical authors who were engaged in a kind of prophecy themselves, they were inspired to write scripture. The Holy Spirit would come upon the prophet, inspiring the words of the message, but the prophet would use his or her own vocabulary and personality. So they each sound like themselves when they are speaking the literal word of God. The prophet spoke that word in such a way that to disobey or disbelieve the prophet was exactly the same as disobeying or disbelieving God. Does that make sense? When a prophet was prophesying, it was literally the word of God. So if you disobeyed what they said, you were disobeying God. The Jewish rabbi and theologian Abraham Heschel once wrote of the prophet, God is raging in the prophet's words. One of my, my colleagues at the seminary called the prophets God's prosecuting attorneys. They would bring suit against the people for failing to live up to the covenant. And this is beautifully illustrated in Michelangelo's painting of Isaiah on the, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Do we have that? Okay, yeah, there it is. So I like this. I didn't know he, that Isaiah looked like a clean-shaven white guy, but that's what, um, <laughs> nevertheless. But, but, but notice in the picture what's going on here. He's got his hand firmly in a book, and there's a little like angelic thing, baby cherubim. I don't know what they actually look like. That's what Michelangelo thought they did, whispering in his ear. And so it appears here that Isaiah has, I'm assuming this is Torah, open, right? He's, he's meditating on the word of God. Meanwhile, God is speaking. And, and what would have been even cooler is if there would have been like um, the Jerusalem Times open in front of him as well. Because this, the prophets, what they do is they would look at the Torah, the law, and then they would look at the people and what was going on that day. And they, they would say, this is what God wants from us, 
This is what we're doing. This is what we agreed to do, but this is what we're actually doing. And then they would bring suit against the people and say, repent, come back to the covenant. So I, I like this picture because it's like inspiration while meditating on the word of God. It's kind of cool. All right. Be a prophet, no easy task. And Isaiah's own ministry was testimony to that. His prophetic ministry, it covers the reigns of two Judean kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, from about 736 B.C. to 686 B.C. And this was a difficult period for Judah, but it was much more difficult for the northern tribes, the kingdom of Israel, just above them. Judah had a front row seat to see the mighty Assyrian Empire perhaps the most brutal and bloodthirsty kingdom the world has ever known, invade and destroy the nation of Israel, those ten northern tribes, the sister country of Judah. The situation is tense then in Judah because Assyria is just marching down. They're going through the northern tribes and they're heading for Jerusalem. And they lay siege to it during Isaiah's ministry. We also know that Isaiah, like many of the Old Testament prophets, acted as advisor to the king. And it appears that Isaiah enjoyed a good, though difficult, relationship with both King Ahaz and King Hezekiah. So that's some of the background on Isaiah and what prophecy is. Let's let's think for a moment about some context leading up to Isaiah 40. Chapters 37 through 39 in the book of Isaiah are different because they're narrative. And you don't get a whole lot of narrative in the book of Isaiah, but there's three chapters wedged in right before we get to chapter 40. Chapter 37 recounts the Assyrian invasion by the tyrant Sennacherib in the early 700s BC. Remember I said they just marched right through the northern tribes and they lay siege to Jerusalem. And Isaiah 37 tells the story of how God delivered the nation of Judah miraculously. The lesson there is that God has Judah in the palm of his strong hand. The next chapter, chapter 38, recounts the illness of good King Hezekiah, where he's given basically a a, a death prognosis. Get your house in order, you're about to die. Hezekiah is bummed about this, and he cries out, haven't I been a good king? And Isaiah, the prophet who delivered that that bad diagnosis and prognosis to the king, he hasn't even left the the palace yet before word comes to him, go back to King Hezekiah and tell Hezekiah this, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, I have seen your tears. I have heard your prayer. I will heal you. And he gives Hezekiah another, what, like 15 years or so of life. The message here, God has Judah's king in the palm of his strong and loving hand. Chapter 39, the last of the three narrative chapters. It recounts the story of the visit of the Babylonian envoys who come to congratulate Hezekiah on overcoming this illness that he was most certainly appeared to at least appeared to most certainly going to die from. The story, though, turns ominous when the prophet Isaiah announces that those Babylonian envoys, they were really spies from Babylon, and that soon God will give Judah and everything that the envoys saw into Babylon's hands. The jig is up. You might escape exile from Assyria, but I'm not patient forever, says the Lord. 
you have failed in the covenant, you will go into exile. The judgment of exile that fell on the northern tribes, but the southern tribes had miraculously avoided for the time being, will, within a generation or two, fall upon Judah. God has his people in the palm of his strong, loving, disciplining hand. And then we get to Isaiah 40. The earlier chapters of Isaiah had plenty of judgments in them. But there was also great hope for a messianic kingdom, led by a messianic king. And so we ask ourselves with chapter 39, where there's an announcement that Judah itself is going to go into exile and Babylon is going to be, or Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. What's to become of God's people? Isaiah just prophesied that an exile was coming. It was agreed to by Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. Keep the covenant, God says, and you will be blessed. Break the covenant, God says, you will be cursed. Make no mistake about it. And the Israelites said, we will do it. We agree to those terms. And exile is brutal. It's the mother of all curses. And Judah had a front row seat for the exile of the northern tribes at the hands of the Assyrians. So they knew what they were facing in the near future. It raises the question then when we get to Isaiah 40, what is to become of God's people? And that's where we pick up. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. It begins with an announcement that one day the tide would turn for God's people. We're going to take it line by line, asking first, what did it mean to Isaiah's listeners? And then what does it mean for us as followers of Christ? So, First line, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Isaiah's prophecy begins with the Lord speaking, calling for someone to go and give a message to to Judah. Calling really doesn't do it justice because it's really a command. Twice for emphasis, comfort, it's, it's imperative, command. Comfort, comfort, my people. To comfort is to to console, to give emotional strength to. It's a message that the misery will come to an end. Judah had abandoned the Lord. They had utterly failed to keep the covenant. The punishment would be exile, and it would be horrific. But pay close attention to the pronouns. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Judah might have abandoned God, but the message is God had not abandoned them. Their failure to be faithful would not result in their ultimate destruction. It would not be over for them, not entirely. And the reason was because God still identified himself with them. His word to them was the same that he had promised to their ancestors. Uh, You will be my people. I will be your God. Now what's interesting in this is that the immediacy of the message when Hezekiah is speaking it, it wasn't really for those 8th century B.C. hearers, was it? The exile wouldn't happen until the 580s B.C., about 130 years later. So when Isaiah spoke those words, the exile had not come for Judah, not yet. But it was a message that they had to hear 
because the exile would come. It was a certainty. And the people of God had to be prepared for it when it did come. Now, when the consequences of Judah's faithlessness and their sin were falling on their head, Judah needed to know that the Lord had not abandoned them. When things were going really, really bad, when they are being ushered off into Babylon, they needed to hear and remember Isaiah's words, words of comfort. God had not abandoned them. He still delighted to say, I am your God. So notice what the Lord is doing here. He's giving his word to his people in advance of when it would be needed most. If Judah was smart, they would store that word up in their hearts for when they needed to hear it afresh. And so should we. It's not a good strategy to ignore the word of God, any of it, until we think, well, now is when I really need it. Now is the time of need. And then rush to the Bible to, uh, to, to look up your favorite verse or something. God has given us his word, his teachings, his good and faithful promises. That, that word is for today, but it's also, no doubt, for tomorrow. You might be going through relatively good times right now, and that's, that's wonderful. Maybe you're thinking, I don't really need comfort. If so, well, good. That's, that's great. But it also means that today is the day to store up the Word of God in your heart for when you need it most. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, we're told. But the Spirit usually doesn't work the power of the Word that is unknown or unheard. So read the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. Meditate on the Word of God today. So you can give the Spirit of God something to work with later. Does that make sense? That's what God is doing with Judah right now. Today's message is primarily about comfort. And if you need to be comforted today, then of course this message is for you today. Maybe it seems to you you don't need to be comforted today. Then this message is for you in advance of that day when you do need to hear it. Meditate on what's said today, both for today, but maybe more importantly for tomorrow. The next phrase, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. And note the language here. It's, it's passionate, but it's tender. It's, it's urgent, but it's gentle. It's actually the same language used in the Bible for when Boaz was courting Ruth. And then in Hosea, when God, who plays the role of the jilted lover, is trying to woo Israel back to himself. It's the language of pursuit, of, of winning over through affection and, and kindness. It's not the language of harsh command or matter-of-factness. It's the kind of language that men would use with a woman that they were interested in. The kind that back in my better days I used with my wife, right? So that she could become my wife, right? So speak tenderly, cry to her. It, it's not an aberration in the Bible. It's an action completely consistent with the way God acts because it's completely consistent with who he is. Remember in, in Exodus 34, and this is one of the most popular verses and passages in the Bible to allude to, so you're going to hear it from me over and over and over again here. But Moses asks at one point to see the glory of God. And it's an, 
And, and the Lord responds by hiding Moses in, in the cleft of the rock. And then this follows. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses goes with this incredible request, show me your glory, Lord. And God says, okay, I will. I am compassionate. That's what he does. We might expect there to be lightning and thunder and awesome light or whatever, but God just says, I am the compassionate one. I am merciful. I am stubbornly and loyally loving. That is what's glorious about me. GBC, this is your God. If you're here this morning, and again, you, you know, maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. You need to understand that the God of the Bible is not first and foremost wrathful and angry. His wrath is always a righteous response to His holiness. He is compassionate, holy, loving, stubbornly loving. His message to you is not, I delight in wrecking you. His message is, come to me for mercy. Repent, be reconciled to me. And Christian, you need to understand the same thing, right? Maybe, maybe even going through a difficult time where it seems that God is aligned against you. And please know that if you are in Christ, God is relentlessly for you. Never aligned against you. His idea of what is best for you may be difficult in the short term. You might not like it. But at that point, we have to trust God is loving and he is wise. He actually knows what's best. He never makes mistakes. His path for you might be hard, but it's ultimately best. Best for you, ultimately. Most glorifying to him, ultimately. No matter what you're going through. People of God, the, the voice of God is not the voice of a tyrant or an angry despot. It's the voice of a lover offering tender consolation and affection. Zephaniah 3, 17, it's a wonderful passage. It reads, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. If you're a follower of Christ, do you understand that this is the disposition of God towards you? You have been adopted into his family, and when he looks at you, he wants to break into song. Not because of your faithfulness, not because of what you bring to the table, but because God has for you the kind of stupid, stubborn love that a parent has for their child. And we live in a broken world that it's is brutal and it is unkind and mercy is in short supply and outrage is the entree of the day 24-7. But God speaks tenderly to his people. The question for you is, do you recognize the voice of God and do you hear the tenderness that pours forth? 
Sometimes we can get caught up in the mess of our own lives so much that we can't hear the voice of God. We're, we're so used to people shouting that we tune out and don't hear the voices of kindness. And God will occasionally shout at us, I suppose, but more often than not, it's that still, small voice that's meant to get our attention. The question is, will we recognize his voice and listen? Now for Judah... The punishment of exile was coming, and and, and it was necessary. The holiness of God demanded it. They had made a covenantal agreement. But it doesn't change the reality of who God is. He's holy and sovereign and merciful. The exile would not mean that God was done with his people. The Lord calls on his prophets to speak tenderly to Jerusalem, the capital city. He wanted to get the attention of Judah so they would hear the announcement. And what an announcement it is that her warfare is ended. Here the language is more of, it should be like hard service, so it includes warfare, but it's more than that. It's going to come to an end. A day would come for God's people when there would be no more striving. God's people would no longer be engaged in mortal combat, literally fighting for their lives. Exile would end. Existence would not be characterized by a war-torn environment. Why would her warfare end? Well, the next phrase, that her iniquity is pardoned. The reason why the trial and the hard service would be over is not merely because God announced it to be over, over, and not because he was bored watching people suffer. People of God were exiled because they had brought upon themselves the punishment that they agreed to in the Mosaic Covenant. Judah going into exile would not be unjust. They would get precisely what they had agreed to and what they deserved. So that raises the question then. If Judah is getting what they deserved in the exile, then why would the exile end? And the answer is, God would forgive. The sins of Judah would be pardoned. And forgiveness is always a good word, right? It's always good news. Are there there three words in the English, English language that are more beautiful to hear than, I forgive you? To forgive is not to say that what was done doesn't matter. Because if if what you do doesn't matter, then you don't really matter. But God has granted to us the incredible dignity of mattering. What we do matters because we matter to God. To forgive is to say, you do matter. What you did hurt. It was wrong. But I am releasing all claim to vengeance because the debt has been paid and it will never, ever arise again. And the reason why the comfort that God is offering to Judah, to God's people, is so robust is because Judah's sin would be paid for. God would be truly satisfied. And here's why. Look at the last clause. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Judah wouldn't need to fear that forgiveness was temporary or incomplete because the atonement for sin, the punishment, it was more than sufficient. It comes from the Lord's hand, personal agency on God's part. He's the one dealing with his people's sin. It says that you have received double What does that mean? Well, not that Israel was punished beyond what she deserved. What it does teach is that the the atonement is manifold. It's deep. 
It goes beyond what's even apparent. It suggests then a forgiveness that is far-reaching, deeply penetrating, wonderfully extensive. Sometimes people tell us that they forgive us, and we wonder, is, is that really the case? Maybe, maybe they're just clinging to the offense, and they're going to bring it out at just the right time when it's to their advantage, maybe when it will hurt the most. And, 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 and so we walk in a state that's like in between shame and freedom, always with a nervous wonder, when is this going to be brought up again? When is what God has against me or what my friends have against me, when's that going to be brought up? The Lord's not like that. Judah was not to be concerned about something like that. Judah would one day receive the kind of forgiveness that allows you to walk away clean without doubt that you're really forgiven. This would be no surface level forgiveness, no by the skin of your teeth atonement. This is a forgiveness that is impenetrable and indestructible, and that kind of forgiveness is more than comforting. It's liberating. For Judah, the Lord wanted his people to be comforted by the announcement that one day the struggle would be over, that one day her sins would be atoned for. Her forgiveness would be radically extensive. That's what it meant to Judah. But what about for us, as followers of Jesus Christ? What does that mean for us? Everything it meant for Judah and way, way more. Why is that? You see, for Judah, that day of forgiveness, it didn't come when their exile was over. Sure, they suffered in Babylon for 70 years, one year for each of the Sabbath years that they had failed to give the land over 490 years that they'd agreed to by the Mosaic Covenant. But you see, an atonement before God that is brought about by our own suffering, it only lasts until our next sin. A forgiveness that is brought about by our own righteousness, that only lasts until our next sin. Turns out that the atonement for sin that ushers in robust and indestructible forgiveness, it wasn't the Babylonian exile. God himself would offer the sacrifice. And Isaiah told the people that this would be the case. But just like the Lord predicted to Isaiah at his commissioning, Judah would not listen. Judah didn't listen to the words that we're considering now of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Judah didn't listen to Isaiah, whose words are recorded in chapters 42 and chapter 61, when he announced that one day God would send his servant to bring justice to the people and to the nations. Judah didn't listen to Isaiah, whose words are recorded in chapter 44, when he announced that one day God would pour out his spirit in an unprecedented way, bringing life, robust life. Judah didn't listen to Isaiah, whose words are recorded in chapter 53, when he announced that the servant God would send would be the one to atone for the sins of God's people. And unlike Judah suffering for their own sins in Babylon, this suffering for sins by the servant of the Lord would be vicarious. It would be on the behalf of others, on their behalf. They didn't listen when Isaiah foretold that the death of the servant would be at the Lord's hand. And then that suffering and dying servant would rise to live and prosper 
Judah didn't listen to Isaiah, whose words are recorded in chapter 66, when he announced that one day there would be a final judgment of the nations, and God would bring about a new heavens and a new earth. Nor did they listen when Isaiah announced that God was going to take individuals from every tribe, nation, and tongue to be his people. Now, some did listen, to be sure. Some were ready for the arrival of that servant. Some started to listen when that servant of the Lord announced that God robustly and stubbornly loved the world and he loved it in this specific way that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Some watched when that servant of the Lord was cruelly put to death on a Roman's cross and then were stunned three days later when he rose triumphantly from the grave even though he told everybody exactly what he was going to do and made room reservations on the other side. But if they'd been listening to Isaiah, they should have known it was coming. And thankfully, they did listen to the risen servant himself when he commanded that news of him be taken to all the nations, nations beyond Judah, with the invitation that anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, because that's the name of the servant, and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. Now I said, thankfully, some listened to Isaiah and to Jesus. Why would I say that? Because that's why I'm here today, and that's why you're here today, because someone listened. If you're here today and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, the invitation to comfort, a comfort that arises from reconciliation with God and a forgiveness from Him that cannot be taken away. If that sounds attractive to you, then we invite you to repent and believe in Jesus. Listen to the words of comfort that Jesus offered. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen to the words of His first followers that I'm repeating here now. Repent and be saved. Isaiah's promise of comfort is for you if you will listen and respond. Children, that invitation is for you. Teens, Isaiah's words are for you. Adults, Isaiah's words are for you. God has done everything that it takes for you to be included in his people. His tender words are for you if you will listen. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, those who already have repented and believed, are you comforted by the words of Isaiah? For though they were written to Judas 2,700 years ago, they were also written for you today. The significant difference is that we now understand precisely how sin is atoned for. To, To quote Isaiah again, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was from the Lord's hand that he sent his son. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief, to raise him up, to prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand because by the hand of the Lord, he received double for all our sins. Christian, that is the message that you first believed. But the comfort of those words are not limited to that one day when you first believed. Therefore, today also, if we will continue to listen. 
your standing before God is secure. His disposition toward you is and forever will be one of joy and delight. I understand that battling the world, the flesh, and the devil is discouraging. But be comforted that you are not starting from a place of deficit, having to earn your way into God's graces each and every day, each time you wake up. You're actually starting each day from a position of forgiven and much-loved child of the living God who has done more than enough to keep you forever. The first question that you should ask each morning is, what do I have to do to earn God's favor today? The first question for you each day is, will I listen to the invitation of Jesus today? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Your position before God the Father is secure because Christ's work is more than sufficient and His Sonship is indestructible. Gresham Bible Church, behold your God, your Savior, the God of comfort. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a merciful God who seeks to comfort his people. And we pray, Father, that you would enable us by grace to live into that, to rest assured each day of your kindness and of your goodness. Father, you are an awesome God precisely because you are compassionate and kind and merciful and gentle. Enable us, we pray, to understand that better. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.